0: We, your people, ours the journey, now and evermore. So friends, there is a story about a pastor who, whenever people find out what he does for a living, maybe they're just chatting on an airplane or something, and they tell him quickly that they don't believe in God, he always says to them, tell me about this God you don't believe in. And after they describe this awful, cold, vengeful, distant God, he eventually says, I don't believe in that God either. And he tells them about the God he does believe in. Friends, what kind of a God do we believe in? Let's listen to these two very short stories from Scripture today. I'm reading from a different translation that I love from each. This is Robert Alter's translation. I love hearing the scriptures and new words that surprise me. From the book of Genesis, chapter 9. And God said to Noah and to his sons with him, And I, I am about to establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the fowl and the cattle and every beast of the earth with you, all that have come out of the ark, every beast of the earth, and I will establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth." And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I have set between me and you and every living creature that is with you for everlasting generations. My bow I have set in the clouds to be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And so when I send clouds over the earth, the bow will appear in the cloud, and then I will remember my covenant between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters will be no more like a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I shall see it. To remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures, that is, all flesh That is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. What if this story marks a turning point? when our spiritual ancestors acknowledged that their own distant spiritual ancestors had all believed that God was the kind of God who would wipe the slate clean and start over, who would exact vengeance for sin, who did think that creation was expendable, who liked us, sure, sometimes we were good, maybe even very good, but didn't exactly love us so much that we were beloved, flaws and all. But at this point, in their relationship with God, they record this story where they declare once and for all that none of them, none of us, will believe in that kind of God again. Look, in this story, even God doesn't want to believe in that kind of God anymore. That God was like a child having a temper tantrum or preteen angst, but God has grown now. God makes this promise never to behave in that way again. And the people don't make any promise back at that point, but I feel like by recording the story in this way and saving it in our holy scriptures, we are making a promise back to God to never believe that God will behave that way again either. That chapter closes. So this is the God we do believe in, the one who hangs the weapon of war in the sky upside down, not needed, as the most beautiful of creation signs, and uses it like a wedding ring, as a reminder of promises made for love. That is the God that we, and God, have faith in. And this is the kind of God we believe in. Only five sentences from the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Again, I'm reading from a new translation, this time by David Bentley Hart. And in those days it happened that Jesus, from Nazareth of Galilee, came and was baptized by John in the River Jordan. And immediately, rising up out of the water, he saw the heavens being rent apart, and the Spirit descending to him as a dove, and a voice out of the heavens, You are my Son, the Beloved. In you I have delighted. And immediately the Spirit cast him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by the accuser, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. Again, this is the God we believe in, the one who would take on flesh and bone and come to be with us, to dive into the rivers, to wander into the wilderness places, the one to experience and resist temptations of power and destruction, and the one who will hear and then share the message, you are my beloved. With you, I have been delighted. These two very small snippets of a greater story are related to each other in so many complicated ways, including all those little details, like, A dove and the water and the 40 days, the rainbow, the angels. They're so evocative of all of these images. Satan and a flood have their counterparts in angels and rainbows. And that seems like part of the good news. Yes, this world has floods and pandemics and beasts and tempters and a wilderness. But for every beast and angel... For every storm cloud, a rainbow. For every temptation, the ability to turn back to God. For every flood, a wind to dry it out. This is the world, complicated and messy, but beautiful, too. Is that our good news? So we enter the season of Lent. And do you have a feeling of deja vu? Weren't we just here? I feel like, did Lent 2020 ever really end? What could we possibly give up that we haven't already? We're ready for the rainbows and the angels. We're ready for the dove. We want to get off this ark and be done with this wilderness. But here we are, waiting for the rainbow sign that it will be okay. So Lent feels like the same old, same old, doesn't it? But I believe this about the Bible as well. Every time we open it, we find something new. Not same old, same old, even though the stories are the same. They always have a new ability to speak to us in our particular place and time. And so this year, Noah's story has changed for me. And I think it will for you too. Noah. Of course, we know him best by the... Nursery rhymes and the nursery themed bedrooms with those cutesy little animals lined up two by two. We remember him as the hero of a child's playset. We know him as the hero of those peppy songs. The animals, they came on, they came on, by toozy twosie, twosies animals, they came on, they came on, by twosie-twosies, elephants and kangaroosie-roosies, children of the Lord. That's the Noah we think about, right? But this year I pity him. Can you find pity in your heart for Noah? Not just all the others who were flooded out, but Noah, that man on that ship? It might seem like I'm asking you to pity Paul Bunyan or some other great legendary mythical hero. It sounds silly to spare pity for Noah. We think of these as truth stories, not true stories, right? There's a truth contained in the story, but we don't necessarily think of Noah and the ark as historical fact, right? The flood story shows up across most ancient cultures. But not this year. I can't just file it away in that category of ancient, legendary, heroic, mythical figure. Poor Noah. When he got on that ark with his family, did he think he was just riding out this storm for, I don't know, maybe 40 days tops? Like, we all thought we were staying home for two weeks to flatten the curve. And then another 150 days passed. And then another 150, until almost a year had gone by, 340 days. It was 349 days ago for us that we called off church and school to flatten the curve, about the same amount of time that Noah and his family spent on that ark. Here we are a year later. Can you imagine being quarantined for so long on a ship full of smelly animals who are depending on you to keep them afloat and fed and keep them from eating each other? I think a lot of us can. John Mulaney is a comedian who has a Netflix special, and I often remember this bit that I heard him do when I see a child struggling. Here is what he says. He says, when you are a little kid, you can't say, I don't know. You have to have answers to questions. If you say, I don't know, you get an X on a test. And that's not fair because your brain has never been smaller. You should be able to. That should be an acceptable answer on a test. You should be able to write in, and now he does this. He's imagining. He's just this very little boy with a pencil and a test. I don't know. I know that you told me, but I've had a long day, I am very small, I have no money, so you can imagine the kind of stress I am under." What kind of stress was Noah under? Can you imagine him standing before God, God Almighty, who just gave that long, beautiful address? And in this translation, it points out that God talks and talks and talks. God makes a longer speech than God does in most other places in Genesis. And then it's kind of like it's Noah's turn to answer, to have something to say back. And it's like in those memes that you see where the answer is just dot, dot, dot. What, what do you say to that? So God continues and God elaborates and God goes on and reiterates the promise. So I imagine Noah standing before God Almighty, bone-weary, sunburned, tired of being cooped up, tired of the responsibility of caring for all that was left of creation after the Creator decided to send them all adrift. I imagine him having wandered smelly halls, checking storerooms for how much food was left. I imagine him homeschooling his sons, on how to muck out those barn stalls. And finally, when the rains stop, a glimmer of hope, but no, adrift, another 150 days, another 150. It sounds so much like what we have all been through. And so finally, he offers a burnt sacrifice, and it never seemed so pitiful to me until this year, but an animal he had kept alive, That whole year on that ark, he sacrifices to God. It seems like it's adding insult to injury. And ultimately, I think he does it because he's trying to please God and wondering to himself, is God good? Does God care? Was that a good punishment for humans just being human? And that's why I imagine him standing before God like The child John Mulaney imagines in his routine saying, thinking to himself before God, I don't know what to say. I've had a long year. I'm very small compared to you. I have no money, so you can imagine the kind of stress I am under. Poor Noah. Can you feel it? In this passage from Working Preacher, I was reminded as I came across this this week, Aristotle described God as the unmoved mover. But in the flood story, God regrets, God grieves, God remembers, God God sets the bow in the clouds so that God will remember in the future. And in the words of Rabbi Abraham, Joshua, Heschel, God is the most moved mover. Not the unmoved mover, but the most moved mover. And so, as Noah stands pitiful and tired and worn out before God, I imagine that yes, God is moved with pity. That's why I want us to spare a moment of pity for Noah, for all those wiped out in the flood for all those we've lost in this pandemic—half a million in this country—and I wonder how many of us know how many we've lost around the world. We spare pity for each other, because God does, and ultimately I think that is the good news today. As the ones who are being created in the image and likeness of God, God asks that we can be moved with pity for all of creation as God is. That we can be struck with awe and wonder at the sight of a rainbow. That we can look for the angels and the doves. But mostly, in the season of Lent, that we can have our hearts broken just by imagining someone else's struggle someone else's plight, empathizing with the amount of stress they must be under. As we enter the wilderness again, still, let's remember to spare that moment of pity for each other. Let's be moved. And let's worship a God who is moved with compassion for us and for all of creation. Let's remember that promise that God made To always be the moved mover. That promise with Noah's great grands, all generations that are to come, that is to say, with all of us and with all beings that are on the earth, which is to say, the birds and the garden of hope through these doors also. Everyone, everything, forever. That is the God we believe in. Amen.